Luke chapter 8. I trust you are here this morning to meet with God. I trust that you've come to talk to Him and to hear His Word to you, to commune with Him in spirit and in truth. I trust that you're here because you long for spiritual prosperity in your life, in your family's life, and in the life of the community of believers with whom you've assembled here today. I pray with all of my heart that Eden Baptist Church will progressively become a community of faith that knows God and loves Him fervently. And it is my conviction and the position of this church that for such spiritual vibrancy to characterize us, we need to hear a word from God on the Lord's Day. We need to hear a word from God each and every day of our lives, but we must hear God's word here in this time. We don't need liturgy. We don't need pageantry. We don't need entertainment and levity, psychological stimulation or musical arousal, some of which may have their place at times and in places, in certain settings. What we need, however, what we must have is a word from God. Church historians have long observed that every time the Spirit of God has moved mightily among His people, at every point in church history, there you will find Biblical preaching. Wherever there is revival, wherever there is spiritual vibrancy, there you will find biblical preaching flourishing in an environment where God's people are hungry for His Word. Historians have noted that for several centuries leading up to the Reformation movement in Europe, that there was an increasing emphasis upon biblical exposition in certain monasteries. And as the Word of God was faithfully exposited, people began to hear and things began to change in their lives. And during the Reformation era, congregates flocked to churches throughout Europe several times a week to listen to long expositions of Scripture as biblical truths so long obscured by Roman liturgy were once again found and discovered and proclaimed more widely not that they'd not been known, but that they hadn't been proclaimed widely. And people listened and heard. And then the Puritan preachers of England followed in this tradition, and their influence was carried to the shores of America, where churches were packed during the Great Awakening by people anxious to hear God's Word. We read accounts of those days that people would fall down on the ground as they came under conviction of the Spirit of God. They would cry out and weep. Because God's word was heard, and it drove a, heart, a knife into their heart, the conviction came, and people changed. I studied recently with a man from Wales who tells of the days following the Welsh revival at the start of the 20th century. His elders tell of a single road in their area that boasted 21 church buildings. This is before cars. Cars were invented, but... Nobody drove cars yet. Right at the turn of the 20th century, 21 church buildings on this one road, over a thousand people in each church. And what were people gathering to hear? They were gathering on that Lord's Day in Wales to hear the Word of God. They came hungry for the Word of God, and there were preachers who would feed them the text of Scripture and challenge them. 
In our day, anemic, watered-down, biblically featherweight preaching satisfies large crowds in many churches across our land. But history and Scripture teach us that spiritual vibrancy will not be found apart from an eagerness on the part of God's people to hear the Word. Why is this so vital? Why is God so anxious that we hear Him? Why is it that we serve a God who speaks, and when He speaks, He wants His people to hear? We could turn to many passages, but I think of God's lament to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy where He says this, Oh, you hear the passion of God coming through these words, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear Me and keep all My commands always. Why, God? Because you're on an ego trip and you have to have everybody hear you. He says, oh, that they would incline to fear me and keep my commands so that it might go well with them and their children forever. They are not just idle words for you, God says to Moses. They are your life. Why is God so anxious that we hear his word? Because, as I blend together a number of other texts of scriptures, because it is living and active. Because it searches and sanctifies the heart. It is able to make us wise unto salvation. It is powerful. It transforms our lives into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so it is from beginning to end that the Bible continues to present our God as a God who speaks and passionately desires that we listen to this life-transforming Word. And nowhere in Scripture is that message made any more plain and clear than in the preaching ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. We find in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus challenges us to consider His Word to hear God's Word and to live it. He challenges us to consider whether we have personally heard that Word with saving effect. I am doubtful, I, might be, I may be wrong, but I am doubtful that there's anyone here today who has never heard of Jesus Christ. You've never heard anything about the Bible. We probably all have. But have you heard that Word with saving effect? Has it come into your life and transformed you spiritually? These are Jesus' searching questions to us as we consider this text before us. We find a summary of Jesus' itinerant preaching ministry at the first verse and following in chapter 8. We read there, chapter 8, verse 1, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. He travels about from one town and village to another. Remember, we are still in the Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. It continues on. Jesus continues to travel from town to town, from village to village, preaching and ministering to people. And as we progress through the book of Luke, it's interesting here as we have a reference to his travels that we're beginning to see no more mention of synagogue. Remember, as Jesus started his ministry up there in northern Galilee, he went from synagogue to synagogue, but it appears now that maybe perhaps two things are the case. First of all, he's no longer welcome there. Secondly, the crowds are just getting too big, too large. He's not able to keep himself under uh, the radar. And wherever Jesus goes, a massive crowd is now beginning to follow. He is, frankly, the best show in town in every sense of the term. 
And people are coming to see miracles and to hear words that they've never heard before and messages. We note here in verse 1 that he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God. That is the essence of his message. And we could boil that down to say, first of all, he identifies himself as the king of the kingdom of God. He secondly speaks of the character of kingdom participants. Participants, Who are the kind of people who participate in the kingdom of God? And then thirdly, he talks about the consequences of rejection. What will be the case for those who refuse this living word? He preaches the good news of the kingdom of God. We notice then, at the end of verse 1, his traveling companions. He is accompanied, first of all, by the twelve who are with him, verse 1. Now, as we go back to chapter 6 and verse 12, we find there that the 12 are selected. You remember that account. They're following Jesus here as disciples. That means they are learning how he lives, what he teaches. They're remembering his messages as he repeats them, in essence, retelling various parables, reteaching various truths from village to village, from town to town. They're taking all of this and hearing this and in their uh, culture, Uh, not really needing to write anything down. They're recounting uh, vast quantities of the text because of the way that culture worked, and some cultures still do today. People remember by hearing. We remember by reading, or not at all. But uh, we have to write everything down. These cultures, they heard, they listened, they kept it in their mind, and they're listening to everything that Jesus is saying going from place to place. But we notice not only are these 12 men uh, traveling with him, but also a number of women, verse 2. Also some women traveled with him who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. It had to be a great story. That's all we know, just that there. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Now that has to be a great story as well. We don't know exactly what this word of, uh, officer means in particular with this man, but it does speak of one with great influence. And it indicates that the gospel is crossing through various economic barriers. This is an individual with great influence and probably with a, a, a considerable degree of wealth as the manager of King Herod's household. His wife is traveling with Jesus. Be a good source of a novel. Or a movie sometime right there to think of what the potential scandal that that may have caused. And apparently she is financially contributing to Jesus. We have a reference there to Susanna, who we know in no other way in the text of Scripture. And many others. These three women Luke draws out, of, uh, presents in his text for reasons that we don't entirely understand, but apparently they were very influential in Jesus' ministry. A ministry costs money. It always has and it always will. And these women played a vital role in Jesus' ministry. As it says there, they were helping support Him out of their own means. These are women with wealth of which they are able to dispose and they present some of this money to Jesus and to His ministry so that it can go forward. There were undoubtedly travel expenses Yes, everybody walked, but there's expenses that go with that. There, were unda- there was undoubtedly the provision of food, and perhaps even clothing, and maybe at some occasions lodging, though most of that would have been taken care for by those who were responding to Jesus and his disciples. We don't know all of the expenses that were necessary. We also know that Judas had money, 
that he was, in, in some respects, the manager or the steward of money among the disciples. So it's not that the disciples never handled money themselves. They did, but these women provide a very significant uh, ministry to Jesus as they provide financially from their own wealth so that the work can go on. They are true partners in the gospel, and everything that Jesus did was aided by their welcome participation. Now, with these background notes posted, Luke turns to a segment of Christ's teaching. And we enter here upon the parable of the sower at verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town to town, he told this parable. We have there, of course, the uh, assembling of the crowd. They're gathering from various towns throughout the region, assembling around Jesus to hear him preach. His popularity was sky high at this point. People were gathering from all over. They wanted to see him perform a miracle to teach. And he teaches here in parables. Now, a parable that we've not encountered yet in the text of, uh, of Luke, but a parable is a story which, as Leon Morris says, reveals and conceals. Good turn of phrase. It reveals truth and it also conceals truth. The telling of parables was an art form in this day, and the rabbis would tell them in such a way that they could steer them in various directions to teach different truths. Jesus used parables then to reveal truth about the kingdom of God, and at the same time to conceal truth from others who really didn't want to hear. More on that in a moment. But he tells the parable very simply in verses 5 and 8 through 8. Verse 5, a farmer, or literally a sower, one sowing, went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path it was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Picture here is very clear to the people of that day. Sowing would take place in late October to early December. The sower would usually have a bag strapped around his shoulder, around his waist, and just take his hand in the seed and would walk in a line and cast it, broadcast it with his hand the seed uh, falling onto the soil. Some of it here, as we note, falls along the path. Now the path is a place where people walk, so it is trampled, and this seed, of course, does not grow. We notice, secondly, in verse 6, some, that is, some of this seed, fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Now, as we compare this with other texts, it's perhaps a little bit easier to understand what he is saying, but the idea is that some of the seed falls on a thin layer of soil. Underneath is a ledge of limestone, which is very common in Palestine. And by not finding moisture, the point is as the sun rises and comes down on that plant, it dries it out and it dries out the soil all the way down to the limestone and the roots have nowhere to go to find moisture and so the plant dies. The third response to the seed we find there in verse 7, other seed fell among thorns which grew up and it choked the plants. Self-explanatory. And verse 4, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. That's a great crop in that day and in ours as well. But it was a, uh, a fourth response. Now Jesus issues this challenge at the end of verse 8 to this parable. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, that is not, if you're not deaf, perk up, 
Everybody could hear what he was saying, but what he was saying was, I have spoken if you care to understand, then listen to what I am really saying. If you do not care to understand, well, he's using Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 27, which uses similar language. There is a moral obligation that is in view here. If you have ears to hear, then hear. Listen, says Jesus, to what I really mean. Well, what does he really mean? The disciples are very confused and they ask him about this parable. Jesus answers, first of all, here in verse 10, why he speaks in parables, which is a question, in fact, that they did ask him. Luke just doesn't land on that. But he answers here, first of all, in verse verse 10, why he speaks in parables. Now notice this. This is crucial to understand in this whole passage. The knowledge, he said, verse 10, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Now that in itself is hard to understand. What does he mean by that? Let's pick it apart a little bit. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God. We have here the translation secrets is the Greek word mysteries. But the way that the Bible uses the word mystery is more like we use the word secret. Secret is something somebody knows and we're really happy to find out what they know. A mystery in the Bible is the unveiling of God's plan at crucial moments along the chronological timeline. God does not give us all of the information at one time. He takes his time and slowly reveals his plan over time. At places, he reveals unique truth about his saving purposes, and that is referred to as a mystery. God takes the veil off and teaches us something about his plan. I might illustrate it by, let's say that you have a very uh, wonderful tour guide who's taking you through a hike in the Rocky Mountains. And as he's taking you on this very uh, unique hike through various places, every once in a while the, the individual stops, the tour guide stops and says, now let me explain where we've come and where we're going, why I've done this. He begins to reveal what he's up to as he leads you on this long journey. There's a long journey in the pages of Scripture as God works out his saving plan and from place to place he stops and says, I've got something new to tell you now. I want to reveal a mystery to you, some new truth that will help you understand as my people how my saving plan is working. Jesus says, such a time has come. And he teaches the kingdom of God, saying, Jesus is the king. This one that the Bible has been revealing as Messiah who will come and will suffer and reign. I am that Messiah. I am the Christ. Secondly, he says that the kingdom will arrive in phases over time. This is a revelation. This is a mystery. This is not something that people could see, but that this kingdom will come in time, over time, and in various phases. This is his teaching. He's revealing this mystery to those who are following him. But you'll notice a second response there at the end of verse 10. There are others that I speak to in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This links back to verse 8. Do you see it there? He who has ears to hear, let him hear, says Jesus. Well, there's going to be some who hear these parables and those hearing, they really don't hear. They take the word in, but it doesn't really sink in. 
the same parable that reveals truth to those who really want to hear what Jesus is saying, at the same time conceals truth from those who do not want to hear what he is saying. So while the parable teaches truth, it condemns those who do not have a mind to really understand the moral responsibilities of the kingdom of God. I, Howard Marshall says it well this way. He says, by this method of teaching parables, Jesus not only invited his audiences to penetrate below the surface and find the real meaning, at the same time he allowed them the opportunity, which many took, of turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the real point at issue. Bach writes that parables with their inherent riddle quality are a form of designed judgment for those who do not want to hear. And as Jesus will now explain, despite the growing crowds, there are many who fall into that very category. Remember the passage that Pastor Pratt read to us earlier from Isaiah chapter 6. This is where Jesus is drawing. This idea of proclaiming the truth of God, but people refusing to hear that truth. Well, Jesus says these parables are a way of revealing the truth and concealing the truth, but we need to understand that there will be many who do not heed it. They hear the words, but they don't really hear. They don't really listen. Now he goes on to explain the parable. This is the meaning of the parable, verse 11. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. Now, those along the path, he's speaking then in a sense of people are sort of the soil here receiving the word. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and when the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved, then the devil comes, takes this seed, and they do not believe and they are not saved. So the gospel is preached, God's saving power through Jesus is announced, and there are people who do not heed it. They don't listen. That's the picture I'm drawing with the seed that falls on the hard path. It never takes root. It's rejected outright. Second response are those on the rock. It is possible to believe without believing. I think Jesus is saying here, verse 13, those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. It's possible to believe without believing in the Bible. The Bible speaks of false belief. We have that amazing reference in John chapter 8 where it says Jesus is speaking to those who believed in him. John 8. How does that passage end? He says to them, you are of your father the devil. To the ones who believed in him. So we have to know that there is a false kind of belief. There is a true belief. There is a false belief. You belong to your father the devil, he says to these who believe. We have here individuals who hear the word, they receive it with joy, they believe for a while, but in time of testing they fall away. Although they respond with joy, they do not in the end follow Christ. We have then thirdly those in the weeds, verse 14. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. They do not, the Greek would read, produce fruit, which is to say they die. 
They hear the word of God, but the competing loves and distractions of the world draw them away from the truth, and they are choked out. They hear the truth, but something else comes in, and it dies. And then there is the fourth response, those in good soil, verse 15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. A few comments here. The word, the seed of the gospel takes here, this phrase, by, preserving, by persevering, by persevering produce a crop, means simply that they live righteously. They bring out in their life, the fruit that the gospel seed intends to bring out. Now, we need to stop for a few moments and to analyze, and we're going to go on further, but just hang with me here for a little bit. We're going to stop and analyze this. This calls for the question, are responses number two and three people who are saved? The gospel is sown, they hear the word, but they don't have root, or they get choked out by the weeds, are these, is this referring to people who are saved? We, we must remember always as we work through the Gospels that there is a distinction between the Gospel in the Gospels and the Gospel that we hear today. Jesus had not died yet. Now that will become part of His Word and His message, but that is not an integral part of the response that people make to the Gospel. That having been said, there is a quality or there is a sense of what saving faith is that's described here that certainly does cross into our day with a little bit different message, a fuller message. We're responding to a fuller message to a Christ crucified and risen. But as we analyze ourselves on this side of the cross, these teachings of Jesus are talking about the way in which God works with people in salvation. So, it is right for us to ask, are the people in response number two and three saved? Let's say, first of all, we have to acknowledge that their destiny is really left nebulous here. Their destiny is not the main point of what Jesus is teaching. And in fact, this is where so much of the debate comes with people trying to say that that is what Jesus is teaching. Either on, yes, they are saved, or no, they aren't saved. Either one, that's really not his primary focus here. He's talking about response to the gospel. However, there is a, a legitimate question here. And some would believe then that these people are saved, they hear the gospel, and they lose their salvation. It says there, they would argue, you see very well that it took root. They receive the word with joy. They have life. But then they're choked out. So they are saved, and they've lost their salvation. Others would say that these are saved, but they are referred to as carnal Christians. These are Christians who never, ever produce any fruit. They never really live for God. I read one commentator this week that even called them dead Christians. I had to give Pastor Pratt a call on that one. I'd never run across that one, but a dead Christian. Uh, they're saying that these are individuals who respond to the gospel, but never produce any fruit. Well, what do we say on that? Have they lost their salvation? We reject that uh, interpretation outright because of passages such as John 10. Losing one's salvation is an impossibility as far as Scripture is concerned. I won't labor on that point. The second idea of that these are carnal believers, carnal responders, that is fleshly people who never live for God. They just get their ticket to heaven, so to speak, and, 
and that's it. Well, let me say on that, to preach that such people should have confidence from this text that they are saved, I think offers a hope that Jesus certainly doesn't offer here. He says, in fact, of the one that by testing they fall away. When the Bible uses the phrase fall away, believe me, that's not something you want to stake your salvation on. That is not a comforting phrase, that they fall away. The Bible teaches that genuine faith produces spiritual fruit. Undoubtedly, there are believers who produce more fruit than other believers in other passages on this very message. In fact, Jesus did say some will produce 30-fold and some 60-fold and some 100-fold. There will be believers who produce different levels of fruit, but if you are a believer, you do produce fruit. If you are alive, there is fruit there in your life, and this is the consistent biblical teaching. Since responses number one through three bear no fruit in the end, show no life, the only fair conclusion is that they are not saved. So how do we determine if someone is saved? There's another point that I think we need to really consider here. Does this parable teach us to put our conversion experience under a microscope? Is that what we learn here? I think it teaches us clearly, does it not to the contrary, to look over a long period of time. The genuine nature of one's faith is not tested under the hot lights and emotional glow of an invitational prayer of commitment. It is tested under the pressures of life over the long haul. You see what Jesus says here. Joyful response, but then no root. But then the choking pleasures of life. And all of a sudden, God doesn't matter anymore. We don't look simply to a conversion experience. We need to look over time to the general tenor of an individual's life. Fruit develops over time and is the only indicator that the seed really took. So if there is no lasting fruit of any sort, if there is a place in time when the supposed believer falls away never to return to the faith, then there never was genuine conversion. And so I think the outcome, I'll return to this in a few moments, but I think the outcome is certainly for us to consider carefully the general development of our walk with God. Not to become too terribly enamored with a particular turning point in our experience, but rather to look at if we truly have heard the gospel and if it has changed us. If not, we have reason to fear. Now, Jesus illustrates and applies what he is saying to the disciples here in verses 16 through 18. I believe that these two are purposefully connected, these two parables we might call this. I might almost just call this next uh, section an illustration. But very briefly, verse 16, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. The picture here is of an oil, an olive oil lamp, probably a piece of just like pottery with a hole in a wick. 
and it's put on a stand to give light to the small dwelling place. That's the cultural picture. Now, when you put a light on a stand, you intend for it to reveal what's in that dark room, to provide light so that you can see. And that's the point of verse 17. There is nothing that is hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known and brought out into the open. The light reveals the truth. God's Word will shine forth the truth. Some will respond to that truth, and some will not. But in the end, every heart will be exposed by the light of God's truth. Verse 18, therefore, consider carefully how you listen. I believe that that is a key phrase to the interpretation of what it means that there's a light that reveals the truth. What is his point? Go out, since light reveals truth, since a lamp was made for a lampstand, go out and share the gospel with everyone. Is that what he says? I mean, that's a great application, that's truth, but that's not what he says. What does he say? Since light shines out and every heart will be revealed, verse 17, here's what I conclude and challenge you to do, verse 18. Be careful how you listen. This gospel truth will come into your heart. And he's talking to people that he's sharing the gospel with, as I am. This truth will come into your heart. You might be the trampled ground. You might be the ground with rock underneath. You might be the ground that gets choked out by the pleasures of life. You might be good ground. Be careful how you hear this word. Because this light will shine and it will reveal who you really are in the end somewhere. That you are either genuine in your faith or that you are not. That you bear fruit because you have life, or that your response to the gospel was only momentary and not real and genuine. Be careful how you hear. Such words could be pronounced a couple of hundred years ago during the Great Awakening and people would fall down on the floor weeping. Now we're a long ways past liveliness in our culture and in our setting. But I want to press that point with you to realize that when Jesus says, be careful how you hear, we should be careful how we hear. There is a, your life, your soul is at stake in how you hear the gospel. Has it come in to fresh, good soil and is it bearing fruit in your life? It is crucial that you hear what he says. Luke, in a very interesting way, takes that very point and illustrates it. Emphasizing again this need to listen to the Word in what seems to just be a casual historical reference at verse 19. But he says, Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see Him, but they were not able to get near Him because of the crowd. That had to be quite a considerable crowd. Can you imagine showing up at the back of this people and saying, he's, he's our family. The guy you're all here to see, that's my son. The guy you're here to see, that's my brother. Will you let us through? And they can't even get through. There's so many people clogged around Jesus, they can't get to him. They're able, however, to pass the message through. And the message comes to Jesus. Your mother and your brothers are here. They want to see you. And what does he say? Verse 21. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. 
You see, that's placed here in the account very purposefully because of the emphasis on hearing the Word of God. Jesus means no disrespect to his family here. He simply takes the opportunity to emphasize how important it is to hear the Word. He also indicates then that there is a family loyalty toward those who are born again by the Word of God that supersedes all other loyalties. Do you want to know God? Do you desire intimacy with Christ? As you picture yourself in this crowd listening to his life-giving words, do you say, I want to follow him? Well, Jesus lays out the key on the table for you right here and says, pick it up and put it in the lock and turn it. Here's the key. Hear what I'm saying and do it. Now, that's only one small picture. As we fill it in with the rest of the New Testament, hearing what he is saying is that he has died to pay the penalty of your sin, that he has risen in victory over death, that your sins can be cleansed and taken away as you put your trust and your confidence in what he has done for you. But when you come to hear that word and that word really takes root in your heart, then it produces righteousness. It produces a way of living. In fact, your life becomes oriented toward the word of God. And you see it, as God said to Moses, not just as words on a page, but you see those words as life. And so we see the emphasis on Hearing the word and doing it here. You notice it in verse 21. You notice it as we work our way back to verse, in verse 15. Verse 18, I'm sorry. Consider carefully how you listen. And then verse 8, 15. Hear the word. And then back to verse 8 at the end. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is in absolute earnest here. You must hear His Word in such a way that you understand it and in such a way then that you respond to it in saving faith. It reminds me back in chapter 6 and verse 46 where we noted earlier, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I'd like us for just a few moments to consider. This struck me as I thought through this passage, and we might all find something unique here, but this really struck me. These words come from a teacher who has healed the sick, delivered the demon-possessed, and even raised the dead. Yet this same Jesus does not say, you have seen my miracles, now believe in me. He could have said that. In fact, his miracles indeed bear witness to who he is. He performed many of them openly for that very reason. Yet with his miracles, Jesus intended more to point people to his words than to his actions. His miracles supported his teaching. They authenticated his message. It is Christ's words that give us life. The fact that he healed 
The fact that he brought people back from the dead were all indicators of who he was, but none of those miracles saved anyone. It is Christ's words that take root in the heart and transform. They're not common words. They are words of life and saving power. He draws our attention to his words. All kinds of people believed in Jesus because they saw his miracles. John chapter 2 and verse 23 says those very words. They believed in him because of the miracles that he performed. And those very people are pictured in John a little while down the road crucifying him. If you saw the miracles, you would have to believe on the basis of the miracles, but that's not saving grace. Saving grace is when that truth comes into our heart and we hear the words, the living words of God. And it forces us to ask this morning, am I hearing Jesus? Are you putting God's word into practice? Which kind of soil are you? If you have not come to a place on your journey where you have crossed from death into life, where you have trusted in what Jesus has done for you, I don't mean you've heard about it. Read the book of John if you're caught up on that issue. Anyone can hear Jesus' words audibly. Anyone can see the miracles that he did and believe in them. But I mean, have you come to a place where you have come to truly believe his words? You've come to understand what they mean, and you've come to trust him as your Savior. If you have not come to that point on your journey, I beseech you in the name of Jesus Christ to obey the gospel. You need to respond to his saving grace. He wants you to. You can't on your own strength and power, but by His grace, He can empower you to respond in faith, to trust what He has done for you, and to turn from your sin and to Him as your Lord and Savior. But I speak then to any who may also be in the number two or three category here. The rocky soil. weedy soil. It is possible for someone in our church to be right there. I I say that only by way of possibility. But it is possible for you to sit in these services and to hear God's Word preached week after week after week for the rest of your life and to read God's Word in your house day after day after day and to never really hear the Word of God. Specifically, as we apply Jesus' teaching, the danger here is that this is in your life just a period of time. You're responding to the Gospel for a short period of time, but as time passes, your love for other things is going to supersede your love for God, and you're going to fall away. I hope I speak to no one. I plead that I don't. But that can happen. Now the answer to it is not for you to somehow become extra energetic in your spiritual devotions to God. But the answer is to test your own soul. And I'll tell you what it really comes down to in the end is for you to fall flat on your face before God in abject humility of spirit and to say, I can't save myself. 
and I'm not okay the way that I am. I need you to save me. If that is where you are, may today be a day of salvation. For those of us who are producing fruit, one of the fruits that God produces in our hearts is that we have a passion for His truth. We long for His Word. And I wonder then along those lines if that is true of you, first of all, and secondly, if we are becoming as a church, a church that loves God's words and heeds them. This man from Wales that I referred to, 21 churches, 1,000 people in each church or better, coming by walking and by horseback and buggy rides, Today, on those 21 churches, there's one left. And in that church, a handful of people. And this man asked our class of pastors and missionaries and teachers that we would pray for his homeland of Wales, where the light of the gospel is now just a tiny flickering flame at the end of a small candle. I really don't care to compare America with Wales or any other country, nor necessarily to look at our response to the gospel as Americans. But I call us as a church to look at our response to the gospel as Christians. It is essential that we as a church maintain an active response to the Word of God if we're going to experience spiritual vitality. Our wick has definitely been compromised in this country. But may it never be compromised in this church. We looked last week and how we can walk closer to God, and we noted the root of humility that needs to draw us to see the glory of God. And we note now this week that we must have a passion to understand and to obey God's Word. He calls us then to spiritual poverty, to humility before Him, to be the kind of people as little children who rest on His every word and do it. Not always because we understand, but because we know it is the way to life. May Eden Baptist Church always be a church that is hungry to hear the word of God. And that will be true only if it isn't true in each of our hearts. By his grace, may we love that word and know that it is our life. Let's pray. Father, what you may be willing to do among us as we would give ourselves to the study, to the understanding of your word and to submission to it. What you could do in our church. What you could do in our individual lives is beyond our imagination. 
But I plead with all of my heart that there would be a revival of the Word of God. An attention to it. An attention that wakes us up here in the assembly. That you would keep us awake and alert. And grant us a passion to understand your truth. That you would keep us fervent and alive in our personal understanding and reading of your word on a daily basis. That there would be a love in our heart for the words that proceed from your mouth and from the mouth of your son, Jesus. That we would heed those words. That we would grow and change as a church. Will you do this in our assembly? Grant us a passion to know your truth and not simply to hear it and then line it up with what we already believe and what our culture dictates to us and land down on our own private position. But may we be willing to bend our minds and our thoughts to what you are saying to us and to really, truly hear. Hearing so that we not merely call you Lord, but do what you say. I pray for such a revival and for such growth in our church and in my life personally that you would take the word of God and continue to convict me day in and day out that I would be a better shepherd, a better man, that each one of us would pray the same prayer to become the people that you want us to be. We plead, dear Father, and ask that you would move us and change us to this end. If there is one among us who knows you not as Savior, I pray, dear God, that you'll bring them to saving faith in Jesus. Please let the light dawn on them. Show them that you are a God of infinite love and compassion and authority and power and judgment and grace. Help them to see you for who you are in the face of Jesus and to respond to his teaching in such a way that the gospel takes root and produces supernatural fruit. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.